0: passage this morning comes from Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright and the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works and giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Will you join me in prayer? Father, this morning we want to express our gratitude for the opportunity that we have to sing your praises, to be reminded that we are a people who are defined by you. You tell us who we are and we respond in adoration and praise for who you are. We have many things to be thankful for, and we have many things to look forward to. We thank you for the women's conference coming up this weekend. We pray that the women at Southside would be women who are truly anchored in your word. We pray for Susan Heck, that she would teach the women well, that she would be founded upon your word as she seeks to instruct those others to be grounded in your word as well, and that we would see women who flourish in our congregation, who are lovers of your word, who are able to handle it rightly, who are able to counsel others in a similar fashion, who are able to steward their homes well, who are able to care for their children, who are able to develop deep, enriching friendships. We pray that we would continue to see the women of Southside flourish, and we pray that you would use this conference to aid in those efforts. Father, we also pray for the Before You Are One class. We thank you for those in our midst who are preparing for marriage. We pray that they would understand The significance of the covenant they are planning to undertake that they are doing it before you and before people so that they might bring your name glory we pray for those attending this class specifically that they would be encouraged they would be convicted of sin they would be spurned on to righteousness in the course of their relationship we pray that before they are one you would protect them protect them in purity may they flee from sexual immorality May they cling to Christ, and may they be able to enjoy marital bliss as it's intended. Father, we also want to pray for churches in our area. We specifically want to thank you for the well. We thank you for their faithful gospel ministry there, and we thank you for their new space that they're, Lord willing, able to meet in as we're meeting here. We pray that many would come to know Christ through their faithful ministry, that the saints there would be built up that they would be shaped and fashioned by your word. We pray for the leadership there, that you would protect them from sin, hold them tight to your word so they might teach it with conviction and faithfulness. And Father, we also pray in our midst that we would be a people who are committed to evangelism, that we would have ample opportunities to meet with unbelievers throughout our weeks and our daily lives, and that we would be quick to share the gospel with them. Father, may we be a people who seek your glory day in and day out, and may that be true with our unbelieving family, friends, and neighbors. Give us opportunities, and let us not forsake them, but let us take those opportunities and use them for your purposes and your glory. Father, I ask for your aid this morning as we open your text, as I seek to expound on what this passage says. Father, I recognize my own weakness and I pray that by your spirit, I would not muddy the meaning of this passage, that it would be clear, it would be helpful for us as a church, and that we would be shaped by it. That your good purposes would be fulfilled in our midst, even this morning. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 111. Psalm 111. Three words this past year. You chuckle because there are things that just conjure up in your mind when you think of the last 12 months. Things that you would probably describe as unpleasant and that's being generous. Yet as Christians, we have the unique perspective that reminds us that there is nothing that occurs in our lives that is outside of the kind and benevolent plan of God. There is nothing in all of the cosmos that occurs outside of the counsel of God's will that achieves the purpose of bringing Him glory and serving the good of His people. For all the things this past year that have brought you dissatisfaction, inconvenience, grief, turmoil, and suffering, it was and is God's plan. To use those things for true good in your life. One thing that I believe has been brought to our attention in this past year that is at the very heart of what we find ourselves doing this morning is that I've heard from many of you expressing that you have a greater appreciation for corporate worship than you did 12 months ago. Praise God. That he has created within us a desire to gather. Yet, could it be that we still think too little of this time? Because I would venture to guess that if you were to poll the children in this room, why do we come to church? You would likely hear an answer such as this, to learn more about God And while there is profound truth in this answer, I don't think it gets at the full reason. And this seems to be what we're showing and teaching them about Sunday mornings. Maybe we ourselves need a more full and robust view of corporate worship. A view that makes it appear less like school and more like heaven. The point of the text this morning and so the main point of our time is this that God gathers His people so that they might recall His wondrous works and delight in His promise-keeping care. God gathers His people so that they might recall His wondrous works and delight in His promise-keeping care. Our text this morning is an acrostic poem, although that's difficult for us to see because we're reading it in English. But if you were to read this in the Hebrew... After the initial hallelujah or praise the Lord, each line begins with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And this was done, we don't know by a specific author or at a specific time, but it was done so that it could be recited and sung amongst the congregation of Israel when they gathered. It's thought that maybe this psalm was sung every Passover, but regardless, the point is clear it's meant to be remembered, it's meant to be sung when the people gathered. And you can imagine, if it's written in acrostic, it's written with poetic themes in mind, that even small children could be tasked with memorizing a psalm such as this. Much in the same way that you counsel your children to memorize Scripture or memorize songs about God or memorize truths at the dinner table through catechisms and things such as this. This is our psalm this morning. So let's read the first four verses again. Praise God the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful." It begins with this simple yet resounding note of praise. Hallelujah, the psalmist writes. But then, how are we to praise the Lord? Well, this psalm serves two purposes. At one, it calls the people to remember. And in doing so, invites them to praise. And this is the pattern for God's people of all time. God's people are to remember and then praise. To recall God and his ways necessarily means that the heart will respond in joyous exaltation of that God. This is certainly the author's posture, right? He attends this assembly saying, I will give thanks with my whole heart. Even before he attends the assembly, he goes with this set purpose in mind. Now I must confess That this is often not my own posture when anticipating our gathering as saints here at Southside. I'm sure that many of us, including myself, would happily and readily admit that we come to offer praises to God. But is it truly with an earnest desire to render our whole hearts as a pleasing aroma to the Lord? Or do we come merely out of duty, social obligation, or even personal fulfillment? When the people of God gather, God is the focus. He is the object of our worship. And we're constantly reminded throughout the Bible to pay attention to the intentions of our hearts and the thoughts of our mind. Well, how discerning are we on Sunday mornings as to our reasoning for gathering, as to our reasoning for being here? Let us not approach this time thoughtlessly or haphazardly because, friends, therein lies danger. Danger of apathy, danger of lukewarmness to the things of God, or even worse, danger of missing the glory of God altogether. But brothers and sisters, do not let your past behavior squash your appetite for the Lord. Do not let the state of your heart for God prevent you from coming again this Sunday and next wholeheartedly. Notice the quality of the heart that is expected in the congregation. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart, the psalmist says. He doesn't come with a full heart. Now certainly the the tone of this psalm and the tone of the next one which it's paired with are tremendously positive, but I don't think the language is careless. The Lord's expectation for his people is not that they would come to him with full hearts, But with their whole hearts. And in doing so, he would then fill them. How often do we get that backwards? God does not call you into his presence because you were well. He calls you because you were sick. He does not call the living, he calls the dead. God does not call the righteous, he calls the unrighteous. He does not call you to come every Sunday morning because he expects you to have a full heart. No. He knows you well enough to know that oftentimes your heart is empty. And as we'll see in the coming weeks of Matthew, this call is beckoned even by our Lord. In Matthew 11, we'll see that Jesus claims to have all authority. And what does he do with that authority? He beckons us to come. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you tempted? To discount or even dismiss the benefit of corp- corporate worship because you feel as though your heart is empty? Do you think that you have nothing to offer the Lord and therefore your worship will not be accepted? He doesn't call you to offer a full heart. He, offer, or he calls you to offer your whole heart. We don't come to church to prove our strength and resolve. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We are not resolute people. We are not strong people. Yet God calls us the same. Our gathering ought to be more like an oasis in the wasteland that is our world. A respite from our striving because we are never more reminded of the loving care and compassion of our God than when we are gathered as a people. And this is exactly the place that God expects his praise to originate. The second half of verse 1 there. This occurs in the company of the upright, in the congregation. This is a corporate act. The psalmist isn't just saying that he wants to praise God where he is, in his car, in his home, wherever he might be, though those are admirable things to do. That's not his intentions. He intends to participate with others. This is not just a general assembly. This is not just a gathering of people that would call themselves Christians, but this is a gathering of those who are following after the Lord. Successfully or unsuccessfully, a pursuit of the Lord marks this people in the company of the upright. This is the qualification of the people, not that they are perfectly doing these things, but they are collectively doing these things, that they're living in accordance with God's law by God's grace. But what is the focus of this assembly? What is the focus of the congregation? Well, we see, verse 2, great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. See, the purpose of the assembling of God's people is that we collectively would serve as a reverberation chamber of the wonderful works of God. Great are the works of the Lord, is the resounding and repeating confession of the Christian. And we unite to study them, and then notice what it says to delight in them. These works, they're meant to be considered, they're meant to be enjoyed. In fact, he goes on to verse 3 to say that they're full of splendor and majesty. These are works of art. Works of art that when we dwell on them, when we think about even a minuscule part of them, the Christian at a heart level is filled with pleasure and wonder. These are not works of art that hang in a museum that are forgotten as we leave the door. But no, these are to be remembered. Full of splendor and majesty is work and his righteousness endures forever. Verse 4, he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. God's work is not hidden in the dark to be dismissed. It's in the light so that all might see. In fact, we saw in Romans, it is the essence of idolatry to dismiss God's clearly visible attributes in the works of his hands. Romans 1, 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them, speaking of the ungodly, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. God's works are meant to be seen. God's works are meant to be marveled at. God's work are meant to be enjoyed. But these works are not done in the abstract. Look at verse 4 again. He has called his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful see the psalm directs us not just to look at the works of God but the works of God direct our attention to the character of God God performs these works in a way that is consistent with his nature and the biblical account makes this clear that the only way we know the attributes of God is when they're revealed to us through the works of God and we see here that in the assembling of God's people These two attributes in particular receive attention. God's graciousness and his mercy. And this, for us, establishes a normative pattern when we gather. That when we are recounting the works of God amongst one another, we highlight those in which God has shown specific loving kindness to us. Even the mere act of our assembling brings these things to mind. Peter brings this out in his letter. First Peter chapter two, verse nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You hear the collective part of that nature. Remember, Peter is writing to a group of churches that are dispersed across Asia. And you can imagine this letter being read in an assembly like this. And these people are hearing the first time that this letter is written. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession. But why? Why does God gather his people? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Friends, this is the purpose of your salvation, that you would gather with God's people and sing of the excellencies of God's majesty and grace, that in the midst of our meeting, there is a declaration of the grace and mercy of God made clear in the works that he accomplishes by his own hands. Let's keep going. Verse 5, he provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. Here the psalm shifts from recalling the general works of God to recalling specific works of God. And this seems to be a hearkening back to the Exodus because he's talking about provision of food. It seems to be talking about Exodus 16 where God provides quail and he provides manna from heaven. And as we've seen in Matthew so far and is certainly true in the Old Testament, the Exodus is God's premier act of salvation up to this point. When God's people think about God's salvific work, they think of the Exodus. And so it makes sense that this corporate song would have Exodus imagery woven through it. He's shown the power, or He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. See, the Lord graciously provides, not because His people were obedient. If you remember to Exodus 16, you'll remember that the people, they are seeing bread rain from heaven. Texas roadhouse rolls, flowing out of the skies, and yet they grumble and complain. But it is not because of their faithfulness that God provides. Look what he says. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. God's work on his people's behalf is not predicated on their obedience, but on his faithfulness, on his covenant-keeping plan. It is his very character and nature to uphold his promises because he is not forgetful. He is not faithless. He is faithful. And we see in verse six that not only does he just provide with food and things that they need, but then he gives generously to his people. Verse six, he has shown the people the power of his works, more so than just providing them with food. What does he give them? In giving them the inheritance of the nations. This seems to be a recall to the Canaan conquest where God gives his people the land that he had promised. Deuteronomy 4 verse 37, and because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, you hear a lot of that same language we're seeing in this psalm, how it's predicated on God's love, on God's choice, on the promises that he makes. And then it's by his presence and then it's by his power driving out before you nations greater and mightier in. To do what? To bring you in. To give you their land for an inheritance. This land that belonged to the nations. These, this land that belonged to a greater nation than Israel. God drove them out so that he might give it to his people. Showing the mighty works of his hands. But this is meant to point us forward. As we go through the New Testament, we come across passages like this in Hebrews that makes clear that this inheritance is not limited to a plot of land in Palestine. But then in the New Covenant, this is intended to be a promise for all of God's people. Hebrews 9, 15. Therefore, speaking of Christ, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. The inheritance is not limited to the land, but this is given by Christ to his people, to his church. Ephesians 1 points this out as well, that Cody read for us earlier, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things on heaven and things on earth. So Christ is working out this plan to unite all things in him, and then what does he do with it? In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. It is for God's glory that we are given this inheritance to prove the power of His works. Now we often remark on God's works, but also the psalm remarks on the quality of God's works. Notice what it says in verse 7. The works of His hands, what are they like? They are faithful And just and at the end of time when all people are asked to survey God's works it will be the final judgment of all people that will declare that God's works of all time are good right and just but what distinguishes us now it's that we currently recognize that God's works are faithful and just By God's kindness, we are able to see these things now. Our eyes have been opened to understand God's works, not fully, but on a level that he has declared to us, that he is faithful and just. And we have a tendency to grow an affinity for what we're familiar with. And so, friends, I would call you to begin recognizing the faithfulness of God now in your own life, in the lives of those around you. That's part of the reason we assemble to not just sing of God's works collectively, but, but talk about God's works in our midst. Because the more we're familiar with it, the more we're apt to identify it and take comfort in it, especially when it's difficult to see. The more that we study the justice of God, the more that we experience the justice of God, the fact that he will do right by all, the more that we will know he will do right by us. The more that we explore his precepts, which that's where the Psalms go, all his precepts are trustworthy, precepts, instructions, commands, the more that we explore those and find them trustworthy, the more likely we are to be obedient. This means that when we collectively remember God's work in our midst, it isn't just to extol the excellencies of God, although that is the main point. But when we do these things, guess what, friends? it's immediately beneficial to us. We often think of God and his works as good and we rightly praise him for this, but how often do we consider him to be our greatest good? God is for us, as we sung so well earlier. He is not fickle, he is not erratic, he does not give out commands and perform works simply to see what happens. His deeds are intentionally fully so, meaning that his works and the full effects of his works are completely under control and used for his purposes. And this means that when he works wonders that are to be marveled upon, when he dictates precepts that are to be obeyed, each one of them will serve the purpose of good in our lives. And this means, as one theologian put it, God is the highest good of man. And here we have the psalm focusing on the precepts of God himself. They, verse 8, they are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. They are established forever. They will withstand the word of time. As Blake so often reminds us of the passage in Isaiah, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. This means these works won't fade with time, but they will form the very bedrock of reality itself. Reality is nothing more than what God is, what God says, and what God does. And this very idea is rooted solely in the nature of God. This means that we are most intact with reality. We are most human when we live as God intended when we commit ourselves to the instructions of the one true God. And these instructions, notice how they're to be obeyed, with faithfulness and uprightness. Yet, do you see a problem? These last two words here, faithfulness and uprightness, they're the last two words that describe humanity. These are the last two words to describe each one of us. These are certainly the last two words to describe Israel, and yet here they are, presented as though they are attainable. Presented as though they're instructions for IKEA furniture. They're right there just for the taking. Faithfulness and uprightness. Yet God does not leave us there. Verse 9 He sent redemption to His people, He has commanded His covenant forever. And here we have it the crux, the climax of this text. God has sent redemption to His people. He is the one who enables his people to live, as those two words describe, with faithfulness and uprightness because he himself brings about redemption and salvation. And this is in accordance with his covenantal promise that he keeps forever. And there are certainly elements of the covenants, if you read through them, that require obedience. Deuteronomy 5.32, you shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord God has commanded you, you shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you will possess. But even this condition here of obedience and the connection with the land, this does not nullify God's overarching promise to his people that he will be our God and that we will be his people. This, friends, is a unilateral promise that is built upon the nature of God and by God's grace not our nature. The redemption of God's people is not earned or merited, but it is given freely by a covenant-keeping God. And notice the language here. He has sent redemption. When we come to the New Testament, we learn this is not just an act of God or even an ambassador of God, but it is a man who is God himself. God himself comes to purchase redemption for his people. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And if you're a visitor with us, if you're new with us, this right here, this very truth is why we sing. This is why we pray. This is why we preach sermons such as this, because we don't just remark about the greatness of God's works, but we delight in God himself, because he has come for us. Look at the last half of verse 9 there, holy and awesome, is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Friends, a right understanding of the works of God will lead us, as this psalm does, to the feet of God. Holy and awesome, awe-inspiring is his name. When we talk about the glory of God filling a space, we don't mean that there's a tangible or physical change in the lights or a condescension of smoke. No, God's glory is the right perception of his true nature. When we survey God's work as a church, when we sing about them in the congregation, when you hear preaching about them, when we pray expectantly that God would exercise them, when we do these things, it's about encountering the glory of God in worship, done in spirit and in truth. And in so doing, when we encounter the glory of God, when we are standing at the feet of God, we are compelled, as the psalmist points out, to fear God, to obey him in reverent worship. That's the idea. What is fearing God? To obey as an act of worship. And when we do this, what does the psalm tell us? It is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice the fear of the Lord, all those who obey in reverent worship, they have a good understanding. Why are these two connected? Fear and wisdom. Well, they're connected because the person who fears God is the person who has the greatest hold on what matters. It means that we will make the wisest choices, the wisest choices that throughout eternity will prove prudent, will prove wise. And this is illustrated in Jesus' parable in Matthew 7. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. This is the picture of the wise life. The wise man who hears these words and acts in accordance with them. This past year, those three words conjure up for you rain and floods and wind in your life. Are there areas of your life where you felt shaken because this was not true of you? Let this be a call to you this morning to fear the Lord and practice that fear, particularly in the congregation when we gather. When we gather and we are encouraging you to come early and to stay late, it's not just so that we would have a social hour. It's so that the reverberation of God's works would increase. It would grow. So with the conversations that you have after this service, are you gonna be talking about the football game next week? Or are you gonna be talking about the works of God in your life this past week? This is the same call that you will hear every time that you come to worship. Will you delight in God? Will you delight in his wondrous works on your behalf? You are called to remember the faithfulness of God and then every Sunday to renew your resolve to build your life on him. Hebrews says it better than I could ever say it. Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for showing us your works. For not working in the dark, but working in the light so that we, by the Spirit, might see. Father, help us not to just mentally ascend to understanding the things that you have done. But let us follow in this psalmist example and delight in your works and delight in you. Father, let us not be drawn to the things of the world to delight in things that are fading and fleeting, but let us delight in you and in your word and your works that will, that are established forever and ever to be remembered, to be sung about forever. Let us consider what we are building our lives on. And Father, we thank you, as odd as it may seem, for shaking our lives in the past year, So that we might see areas of our lives, areas in our life as a church in which we have not been wise. We have not feared you. Use this text this morning to call us to fear you. To call us to build our lives on you. To cause us to speak and sing of your wondrous works in the midst of the congregation. So that we might experience your glory. And Father, as we said at the beginning, may our time be less like school and more like heaven. We pray these things for your namesake in the world, yours namesake here at Southside, and for our good. Amen.